This is the Lowdown with Brave Mama, a community to see you, hear you, and support you on your journey living with pelvic organ prolapse. Hi there, it is your host, Steph Thompson here, and just before I introduce our guest for today, I have something beyond exciting to share with you. Our beautiful podcast partners, the Empowered Motherhood Program, as you would have already heard, have been offering our Brave Motherhood 10% off for the lifetime of their membership using their app that has specific prolapse, prenatal, postnatal exercise for you. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. If you are already part of our mailing list, it'll be sent to you directly to check it out but it's amazing. Up to 45% off your membership. Now that is something that is really hard to pass up. So our guest today is continuing our conversations around Caesarean Awareness Month, which was April. Now, the fact that we're sharing this with you in May, there's actually a point to it. And that is, while it's beautiful to have these awareness months and awareness days to start a conversation, we also think it's just as important to continue the conversation. Today, I have invited Leonie Rastus, who is known as the C-section whisperer, and her background in midwifery, having six children of her own via cesarean section, really puts her in a place to be an expert, to talk to us today about all things cesarean section, birth and recovery. So let's get into our chat with Leonie today. Leonie, thank you so much for joining us today for April Caesarean Section Awareness Month. I want to start by saying I know this conversation, we're sharing it after April, but isn't it really important that even though we have awareness days and awareness months, they're good to start the conversation? But do you think, really, we need to continue these conversations because it's not just a one-off, right? Absolutely. And especially with this rise in caesarean rate, we really do need to be keeping it out there and, and helping women and, and how to prevent complications and have the best possible recovery. So, yeah, that's that's a 365-day job. Yes, I love that you said that, 365 days, because women are having babies 365 days of the year. Now, what I've actually done is I've put a link in the show notes to your story that you were just recently featured in Mamma Mia. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes into great depth of what happened. I was wondering if you could just give us an abbreviated version of that. I mean, you've had six children. And so maybe let's just talk about the birth in particular that really drove you to, to write a book, to create a device and a Facebook community for women going through cesarean section to support them before birth and after birth? Okay. Well, it was established with my first baby that I, I would have to have cesarean births because of the x-ray pelvimetry that was done in the okay. 80s. And so I did have six cesarean births. Five of them were epidural. And of those four, epidural or spinal anesthetics, and of those five, four were fantastic. It was, okay. they were just wonderful. However, the fifth one was problematic. What happened was I engaged a senior anaesthetist, a consultant okay. to, to do my fifth spinal. And he was quite happy with that. He said, yeah, he would do it. Okay. However, on the day I went in to have my baby, he, didn't turn up. Um, there was oh. another substitute. A okay. younger guy was sent to do the anaesthetic. And it appeared to have worked. However, once the obstetrician started cutting, I could feel the scalpel. I could feel 
I could feel everything that was happening. Unfortunately, there was no no help available. The doctors said they needed to continue what they were doing and the anaesthetist just looked lost. He didn't have anything to offer. I wasn't offered a general anaesthetic, which is okay. which really should happen if if you're feeling the pain. So basically, I just had to endure the the surgery and the stitching and being a midwife myself I knew where they were up to and how much longer I had to go so yeah. I basically just realized I was on my own I wasn't getting any help from within the theater so I just went into a deep meditation and prayed and yeah. and that was really how I got through Okay. I've got mm. a few questions on that. If you don't mind, if we just go back a second, because yes, you've mentioned and I did introduce you in the in the intro as a midwife. So you have a wealth of experience in childbirth, both mm. vaginal and cesarean births. Yes. My first question would be, back in the 80s when you had that the scanning of your pelvis as a midwife and then you were were you told your pelvis was too small like what yes. was the result of that okay it's called cpd contracted pelvis diameter yeah okay do they still do that these days because i tell you why i feel like no. i i see in social media a lot especially from the natural birth advocates mm -hmm. don't let anyone tell you that your pelvis is too small Mm -hmm. So what, what has been the shift there? Well, I guess the, the risks outweigh the benefits and they, they just don't offer x-ray anymore. So, yeah, I, I think that it, it's just women are, are left to just trial and error and then we have what they call obstructed labour. Mm -hmm. So a woman can be in labour for 20 hours and then there's no progress so she'll have an emergency caesarean. Okay. And that's sort of where we're left. Every woman's pelvis is, is I guess, deemed capable of birthing okay. a baby until it doesn't. Uh, right. And Interesting. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case given the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, right. That that's thank you for sharing that because I didn't know that education piece. Now the second question was when you were there on the table in your full vulnerability in theatre and you had this and I don't know, it just always feels like it's always the way. Like I booked this obstetrician but he couldn't make it or it, it couldn't happen. So I had someone else and it's the someone else where a lot of the things seem to yeah. not go to plan, right? Yes. So you were there in full vulnerability. When you said you couldn't get help, I'm just thinking of the situation you were in. What could you possibly ask for? How do you advocate for yourself to well, ask for anything? Like what could you have asked for? Well, what I realise now was I, I don't recall a conversation with any anaesthetist about what if it doesn't work, what will you do? And so, you know, I really encourage women now to have that conversation. Will you believe me if I say I feel it? Will you take action? Will you give me a general anaesthetic? I'm okay with a general anaesthetic. I would rather, you know, not see my baby straight away than endure that torture, really. I mean, yeah. You know, the, I dug holes in my husband's hand and he told the, the doctors I could feel it. The two nurses told the doctors and they said, we've got a job to do. We have to go on. And we've that's where I've got a job slept. to do. We've well, got a job to do. Isn't that <laughs> <the> job <laughs> to protect the mum well, and the baby? Well, you know, I could see that 
you know, I don't know, they, they weren't pretty intent on continuing. So I, I worked that out and I realized that I don't know if the anaesthetist topped up my epidural or spinal. I don't know that. Sure. I don't ha recall a conversation with him at all, but I do remember his face looking totally yeah. bewildered. Yeah. Really sorry for him actually later thinking oh. that, you know, he'd been left to do this or sent to do this without his supervisor. Yeah, so it was just a really unfortunate situation. But the the good thing is that it it has been the catalyst for me writing this book. And the research that I've found since is that anaesthetists caution to to have that conversation or mandated to have that conversation and be prepared to switch to a general if necessary. The guidelines from the UK talk about believing the woman if a woman says she's feeling yeah. believe it take action yes. and you know so that's really good to know so does is that happening here in australia now too or just in the uk well i couldn't find any guidelines in australia but the uk one came up and that was written by a consultant anaesthetist who had worked at the university of nottingham okay. i think and he had been called to give an opinion on 74 cases of failed anesthetic and oh, so it's not rare no it's oh okay wow okay yes yeah, so he had he said that the reason that it's the most successful or the commonest successful litigation against anaesthetists is for failed anesthetics and he said that you know it then he was encouraging believe the woman mm. take action so when you go to have a cesarean section birth for the first time if you know you're having a planned caesar does it, is an obstetrician meant to kind of explain to you the process from start to finish, risks, benefits, and do you sign a paper to say that you understand that? Yes, yes, okay. that's right. So your obstetrician during that birth or the doctors during that birth, you, are you saying you didn't recall having that conversation or anything like that? Well, uh, look, I can't, to be honest, but yeah. then being a midwife, they probably thought that they could skip that that I, I know <laughs> I was thinking the same thing they probably yeah, just assumed yeah, she yeah. knows what she's doing we don't have to go through this yeah. isn't it interesting yeah. I have a question around litigation because it is back in the 80s it was probably very different then to what it is now did you kind of seek your your medical notes and find out what actually what they recorded happened in that room no and unfortunately I did uh, I, w I was very unwell afterwards. I, I think it was about yeah. the three-month mark that I developed an abscess in my tooth and the dentist tried to numb my gum and I couldn't accept the anaesthetic. She tried everything oh. and uh, she said, look, come back tomorrow and still couldn't do it. So I ended up seeing a GP who practiced hypnosis and she confirmed that it, my rejection of the anaesthetic would be related to my experience. And I had two sessions where I got to reframe the, the pain in theatre and then I went back to the dentist and I it was first injection I was numb so wow. that was really good and then uh, you know she said to me look if you need emergency surgery between now and when we finish this therapy you're going to need me to come to theatre to help talk you down into the anaesthetic 
which was a little bit frightening. But anyway, she was amazing and, and that was solved pretty quickly. And then soon after that, I read an article about a woman who had a failed anaesthetic. She said it was like a hot knife cutting through butter. Oh, and I had kept the lid on it until then. Okay. And then I just went into PTSD symptoms and my life was in chaos, really. I had, oh, couldn't sleep. I was hypervigilant, having flashbacks. I was confused. My memory was gone. I was so anxious. I thought my, um, one of the children, all, they all had asthma. And I thought one of them, which actually often they're finding is, can go with cesarean births. A lot of children born by cesarean have asthma. So I had the jackpot. I had five with asthma and I used to panic that maybe they'd have an asthma attack at night. And so I'd be like Florence Nightingale going around checking their breathing and, and then they were okay. So I decided my husband, I'll have to I'll keep an eye on him. So I was taking his pulse at night because oh, his yeah, father had yeah. had a heart attack and I thought, oh. so it was just totally totally chaos and my husband actually spoke to a lawyer about the negligence and he advised him that it would be too traumatizing um Mm -hmm. to revisit and so I didn't bother and it wasn't until after I'd written the book and Mm -hmm. finished I thought I would really like to know what happened to me because what happened after the book was their research is is sort of appearing about birth trauma and obstetric violence and i thought i've got a name for what happened to me i didn't have a name for it until then so i thought i must try and get my records so i phoned the hospital yes and only to find that they had destroyed them so oh, because it was a period of limitation of time. Yeah. Well, I think she said they kept them for 15 years and so it's it's over 30 years since that wow. happened. So, yeah, that's really disappointing, but you know, I um yeah, I just sort of took me a couple of uh, probably 18 months to level and yeah, it, it was a really really tough time. I bet. Thank you for sharing that vulnerability with us because it's even as a as a midwife to go through that yourself is very it's very full on. And yeah. in actual fact, I don't believe even if you did receive your notes that those doctors would have actually said what was your experience. They would have put down what they wanted the experience to be because it's handwritten. It wasn't a digital yes. uh, footprint. And I say that because I know my my notes from my birth trauma were vague at the best, not even written by the person who helped deliver the baby, the the person who was responsible Mm. for the vacuum forceps. She didn't write one note. Mm. They were written in retrospect by the midwife who was not even at the point of the the birth. She was at my face. Mm. So it may not have actually given you a resolve anyway, Leone, if that's a little bit of comfort for you. And I just love that what you're doing now is actually taking a really shitty situation and had me having to go through that and live in silence and live with this thing yeah. you didn't even know what it was called, to recognize it, seek treatment and help, to mm-hmm. come through the other side specifically to help other mums. Let's talk about that a little bit more, should we? 
Yeah, well, I was acutely aware of the the pain that you feel after a cesarean around the wound, you know, and the limitations and, you know, mo- any sudden movement is, mm. is really difficult, any coughing or sneezing or even laughing. Mm. And one of the things I learned in my nursing course was for any abdominal surgery, always roll up a towel or oh. a cushion to support during those sudden movements. And I don't know where it's lost, been lost, but I I would often go to work and I might be allocated three caesareans and none of them had the towel or the rolled up, the towel or the cushion. And so that was always my first job. I would go and get the towels, tape them up, educate the women how to use them and to keep them nearby and, you know, and used to introduce it as their 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 best friend you know for the next week to don't be separated from from the towel anyway one day while I was making this towel a dad said to me what are you doing and I explained and he said don't you have something in the storeroom fit for purpose and I said I've been doing this for 40 years so I thought about that and I thought I I wonder is there anything and I checked the internet and I couldn't see anything. There was something vaguely like it in the UK for £100, it was 150 or something. And I thought, no, surely there's something around. And when I couldn't find anything, I set about designing my own. And I called it the sac splint or surgical aftercare splint. And a lot of women have, have used them and said they've been really helpful. Yeah. And so that, that was the beginning. And then I realized actually it's, it's very hard to get that message across. I think I need to create more education. So that's when I set up my Caesar Care to, to help with programs and online programs. And then I, that morphed into a care package. And then I was invited to London to the International Maternity Expo to show my splint. And there I met a midwife who shared the same concerns from the UK and we decided to put our heads together Mm -hmm. and and write a book, a a manual, a C-section recovery manual. So we did that during covid via Zoom <laughs> with amazing. the time difference. It was a nightmare. <laughs> and we, we've we created this amazing book. And I say to mums, it's sort of a little bit like the baby book, but it's the mum book. Oh, like and, the blue book, you mean, the one that the baby gets and takes home. This oh, no, you mom. know the milestones books. You can get all sorts of books to oh, pick yes. baby records. Yes. Well, with this, we've got 12 chapters of knowledge about you know, recovery and mm-hmm. sleeping and feeding positions and things like that. Oh, and okay. then we've got the middle section has journal pages. So we've got a little bit about the importance of maternal journaling and then the blank pages with prompts. And then the third section is six weeks of day planners so that they can just, oh. you know, in the fog and the tiredness, the fog of the yes. pain relief and all of that, they can just open the book and go, oh, I haven't had my lunch. Or I haven't had my breakfast and things That's like good. that. And then the, there is also a scar tracker, which I designed so it's got the signs of normal wound healing and abnormal and encouraging them 
for 30 days because you can get a wound breakdown or infection up to 30 days after okay. surgery. Yeah. So this is just to keep them on track and to know when to seek a medical review. So that was sort of, yeah, like I, I just felt that I, I wanted to share yeah. what I'd learned along the way and also a companion for the women because so many are going home after 24 hours mm. and it's oh what next so this yeah. goes through all of the stages and the weeks afterwards that's amazing and, and I think a lot of women just get that six-week checkup back to life okay I can go back but then as you say it's really hard to know if a wound is looking like it's healing because sometimes you might get a little bit of pus or something but it's part of the healing and other times mm -hmm. it's the breakdown I had two midwives look at my stitching and from the episiotomy who said ah oh, it's fine and then when I'm like it's I don't think it's fine but I'm not the expert they just said we'll just go to the GP and when I did that he's like you are going straight back to hospital that is so infected it's ridiculous Mm. For for my obstetrician to look at it and say, yeah, we're going to have to start this all over again mm -hmm. and, and had to take action. So I think it's important even if you do have a good support network, if in your gut you're feeling like it's not feeling right or it's a smell, and I'm guessing that your book walks them through that. If Ab Yes, absolutely, because and we tell a story of a midwife in the UK who felt things weren't right and kept going back to the doctor and they said, oh, it's probably mastitis, just take these antibiotics. And she ended up having sepsis and had to have a bilateral amputation below the knees. What? Yeah because oh it wasn't, wasn't detected. So these are the really? things that we've got in the book that, you know, it's not good enough to say, go, you know, go home and see your doctor in six, week, six weeks. It's important that the women look at their wound every day with a handheld mirror or a full-length mirror yes. or get someone who else who can and keep to monitor it daily. And there's also women who feel they don't want to look at it. They feel yuck about the scar. Yeah, I so We want to encourage them to, if they can, to befriend the scar and see it as a positive thing mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the stigma that goes with caesareans, particularly emergency caesareans, Agreed. a lot of women feel they've really failed. You know, it, in a way, maybe I had a, it was a bit of an advantage having that X-ray pelvimetry at the outset, like, I was never allowed to try because I'm only five foot tall okay. and, yeah. you know, I was probably. But at the same time, I I for a long time felt robbed that I'd never had that triumphant last push that vaginal yeah. birth gives. And I really, I struggled with that for a while, but now I, I sort of think actually, you know, it's an enormous triumph to push a baby out of your body. I know that. But it's also an enormous triumph to have major surgery while you're fully awake. Oh. So I think that both both have, you know, triumph at the end and and we should really encourage women to see that it's not a failure and yeah. and 
once a C-section isn't always a C-section. There's wonderful research out there now about vaginal birth after cesarean. I really encourage that. It really depends on the reason for the cesarean. If it yes. If it was because the baby was in trouble, well, then that may not happen for the next one. It mm -hmm. may be okay. And there's, yeah. the, there has been quite a surge in vaginal birth after cesarean section, which is really good. So it, there's a lot yes. more support and knowledge about that now. And I love that you say that a, a VBAC is, is a choice. Like just because your first birth went a particular way doesn't mean the second one has to have that mm. same outcome. And I love that we're sharing these stories in the hope that women feel more empowered. And I want to address the fear factor because obviously when our listeners go and read your story in Mamma Mia!, and I've looked at the comments and so many women say thank you because I felt so alone. Now, I also know, especially in social media, Leonie, I don't know how it kind of fits in the midwifery industry itself, that we don't want to tell women too much about childbirth. We just want to give them all of the lovely fluffy stuff. Mm -hmm. We don't want to tell them anything because we don't want to scare them. However, I can guarantee right now that you were scared even though you were not told. I was scared even though I was not told. I feel like by keeping it a secret, we're not eliminating the fear. In fact, we're probably just making it worse, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So by telling these stories, and I, I don't know if you've ever heard, oh, stop telling women horror stories yes. in childbirth. And I have a lovely comeback for that. I'd love to share it with you. I say, stop calling them horror stories because when we do that, we imply that they're made up or exaggerated. Mm. They're horrific, yes, but don't tell me that I have a horror story because I'm not trying to scare women and neither are you by creating this book and this splint and then this free Facebook community to, to help women not feel alone. It's not to scare them away from vaginal birth. You've said it just there, a VBAC, mm. right? You're not in either camp, cesarean or, or vaginal birth. Yes. You just want women to be able to have the information to say for themselves, actually, Doc, I want to talk about a VBAC some more, right? Yes. Or I want to choose a cesarean, full stop, end of conversation, and not feel ashamed and not have the taboo. I just really would love to birth my baby via cesarean section. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, and they shouldn't have to explain because we know a significant number of women have been victim of victims of abuse yeah. and maybe just the whole the thought of, you know, being in that position it would be a trigger and they just need to avoid that at all costs. So we, we really have no right to really challenge, I don't think. Women shouldn't have to justify their choice. And maternal yes. choice is a lot more accepted now. Yeah, that 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 is important, I think. Yes, um, and I think women can only have and make that choice when I say they have both sides of the textbook. So they have all the information about vaginal births, risks, yes. benefits for them individually. Yes. Caesarean section, risks, benefits individually for them and their body. Things are, are changing in that area. And there's Hazel Keedle's done a lot of work on vaginal birth after caesarean and that that's, you know, 
quite amazing the the amount of women who are able to and she has a really good strategy and when they're finding women who are cared for in midwifery group practice by a known midwife have a better chance of a vaginal birth success after cesarean as well so there's a lot of different models of care now which are, are really helpful in empowering women yes so, yeah. and Midwifery-led practice was very much on trend when I had Elsie seven years ago, and that's exactly how I was in that that program to start with. So I've had both experience, midwifery-led care and a private obstetrician, and having the privilege of being able to have the choice. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no point me saying which one I prefer because it doesn't matter. No. I think every woman has to be able to have that experience of, like, my wish, Leonie, yeah. Yeah. is for someone to have access points throughout the entire nine-month pregnancy from speaking to doulas, midwives, obstetricians, anaesthetists, counsellors, the whole gamut. Yes. Before getting into the moment when the, this baby is coming out one way or another. Yeah. Let's make those decisions and, and those thoughts and those conversations and those hard questions before. Yes the moment so that you can work through any fear. Mm. You can find out more information because I, I too still hear that middle free lab practice is the gold standard. It's the way to go. But that wasn't my experience. It was horrific. Other women who have had, and it depends where you go as well. If yes. you go on a Facebook page that's pro Caesar, they will, generally the women there will talk about their failed VBAC and they wish they yes. never did it. So I just think it's nice for women to have all of it in front of them, the good, the bad, the ugly, the in-between, to then say, okay, this is what it looks like for that woman, that woman, that woman, and that one. What, what picture do I aim for for me, mm. right? And then if that doesn't work, what comes next and then next? Yeah, I think that that's so important. And I know when I used to teach childbirth education, I was given a deck of slides and told, this is the curriculum, don't deviate, stick Ooh. to the, yeah. <laughs> and uh, cesarean birth was like, uh, we don't talk about that, you know, if you have to have one more, you know, there was no cesarean classes and um, no no statistics, you know, like I think it's that's another reason why I wrote the book to the, there's preparation, you know, in there as well, preparation okay. for cesarean and oh, great. gifts and packing your bag and things like that because it's just, it's too late. I mean, you know, I think about 50% of cesareans are emergency cesareans and the rest are elective. Okay. Um, but it, it's sort of, yeah, and they really struggle. The emergencies really struggle because they have not been prepared for it. There's a lot um, going on. And in terms of the anaesthetic, like in the UK, the guidelines say that 5%, up to 5% is acceptable for women to feel the, feel the surgery. And of those 5%, 1% will need a conversion to a general anaesthetic, which okay. just, I, just, I mean, so we can say, look, you know, a very small percentage will mm -hmm. feel it. Yeah. That's elective caesareans, but it rises to 15 to 20% for 
emergencies. Is so because they're in a rush for the baby, I take In them. a rush and, yeah, it's just so that's really important for women to know and that they may need to debrief down the track after the yes. birth and they may need trauma therapy. So I think that, you know, we have to be honest. We have to say, look, it's it's rare, but it can happen and you have the power to demand or you have the right to demand yeah. a, a general anaesthetic because no one should be in that position feeling powerless and, you know, dehumanised really by being, yeah, you know. Totally. I have a question on that actually because I, it came up before when I was like, oh, I've got too many questions. You've got so much valuable information to share. <laughs> Is that so would a woman have the choice then if it's decided that cesarean is happening and it's actually happening and then they can start to feel it you didn't have a choice you had to endure it would women have the choice to say i want a general anesthetic like how would they know that they need to ask for it and the second part to that question is what if they wanted to stay awake because the societal pressure is like, oh, you have to have the skin to skin with the baby and it's all about seeing your baby for the first time. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, look, I, I was awake for four, five of the babies and, and, and that was really great. Although I didn't, don't have any memory of seeing the fifth one. Okay. I in theatre, I've got no memory of that. But I, once I got back to the ward, I've I've got photos introducing him to his siblings, okay. and that I'd had pain relief by then. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. So basically, with when you could feel it all happening, you you had no memory anyway. So if women can feel it, a general anaesthetic is not necessarily going to take away that first connection that first moment with your baby is it or well, I don't know is it no well the thing is you could there's a midwife there to receive the baby and if you do have to have a general you could organize with the midwife to make sure the baby has contact with your face before okay. it it you know goes and then it'll go to dad anyway but yeah, yeah it, it it's the conversation beforehand it's not with mm -hmm. the obstetrician necessarily it's with the anaesthetist and you okay. need he needs to assure you that if you're feeling it he will take action and that action might be to increase the spinal or yeah. if that fails then to you you will authorize him to give you a general and you'll because the risk of of pushing through and the aftermath i mean yes. you know i've really lived with a lot of the aftermath for 34 years and yeah. you know there's been times when i've been triggered things that have triggered me into you know and have three or four days of really bad times because it's no just so that. close yeah no one mm. wants that definitely not that's yeah so that's your choice you know risk yeah. it and and have a really tumultuous recovery or be asleep and, you know, see the baby pretty soon after and know the baby's with the partner, the the father or the, the birthing partner. partner. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And look, I think that happens a lot anyway. I know my daughter was taken away from me because they had extensive stitching to do and yes. she went with my partner because that's that was the next skin-to-skin -skin contact with the family person. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're not going – the baby's not going to think, oh, my gosh, where, where is my family? And I think that's probably part of the fear that gets 
driven into us yeah. to say, well, if you have a vaginal birth and you get baby on your chest, I didn't. Mm. I actually refer to my episiotomy as a vaginal cesarean. Mm. Cut from front to back, oh. you know, all the complications that came with not healing and then obviously the pelvic floor damage. Mm. So it's quite funny when you were saying before not having the vaginal experience, I was thinking, wow, I remember wishing I had a cesarean and didn't have that last push. Like, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The grass is always greener. <laughs> right. Yes, I agreed. Yeah. But in, in actual fact, and I know this might be a bit icky for some people to hear this, but had you and I not had the experience and the trauma that we did, we wouldn't be here here right now living a very fulfilling life by helping other women, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And having these type of conversations so that this doesn't happen to our daughters so that they don't feel blindsided. I've never felt more fulfilled in my life mm -hmm. to know that we're helping other women. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And when I finished the book, I remember thinking, wow, this is a gift for women, you know, going approaching cesarean birth or after cesarean birth. And then I realized it was a, actually a gift for myself. And that was, that was amazing because it led me to seeking out birth trauma therapy. 30 years after the event. And, yeah. you know, it's a three-step process, this, this therapy, the Richards therapy process. Absolutely amazing. I cannot believe the difference in my mindset since I've had that, been through that process. And I thought, wow, I wonder what my life would have been like if I had have had access to this therapy oh, much yeah. earlier. Mm. Right. And I love that you just went there because I know so many of our listeners who have been through birth trauma, who have adult children just like you, still are carrying it. Mm. Are still, you know, even physically with their prolapse, but mentally and emotionally, it's still there. Even if they feel like, oh, well, I've lived with it for this long. What would be your last parting words to any of our listeners in that situation now that you've gone through this therapy? Oh, it would be just, uh, really find someone to debrief with. And, and, you know, there's, there's, uh, checklist, the woolly scale. There's, there's different tools to measure the effect that the birth has had on you. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you realize that you, you are living with long-term trauma, then seek out help. And I couldn't, you know, speak more highly of the TRPT therapy and therapists all over Australia and Judith Richards, who's the author of the program, who's a survivor herself. She runs regular trainings and a lot of GPs are referring to her now. So yeah, I would, I would just say, you know, especially before if you're having another pregnancy mm -hmm. to get onto it because you carry all of that baggage into the next oh. pregnancy and the fear and the distrust, yes. you know, that just doesn't leave. It's an unconscious because as Judith Richards says, we only operate on 5% of our conscious mind and the rest, 95% is unconscious. And I realise how much of my behavior over the 34 years has been unconscious behavior from that trauma Ooh, and betrayal. That's from very powerful. People. Yeah. That's so. really powerful. Wow. Wow. 
Go you, Leonie. I can't thank you enough for coming and sharing your wisdom, your heart and your knowledge with us today. I will definitely put a link in the show notes to your website where people can find everything that they need to. And I would definitely recommend for anyone to share this. If you know someone's having a cesarean section, just have a conversation with them. Share this episode with them. And even as a midwife, I think you should have a listen and then just leave it at that. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Leonie. Let's keep talking. Every All 365 right. days, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, you. Thanks, Leonie. Bye. Thanks. I think it's really easy to see why we invited Leonie onto the show. Her years of experience, her personal lived experience, now writing a book and creating the splint. She really is the expert when it comes to cesarean section. Now, if you are listening to this right now and you have personally had a cesarean section birth and the experience wasn't as you thought it would be, Leonie also has a free private Facebook group, which you can join and be part of that community to share your thoughts and feelings. And I'm going to encourage you to do this. If you are a doula or a midwife who listens to this show, I encourage you to share this episode in particular with any one of your mamas who you think could really benefit from listening or who would just like to know more about cesarean section birth. I know the point of view that you don't want to scare women. But I want to reassure you that yes, Leonie's story at the time was traumatic for her and it took her a long time to work through that. But I promise you, by not sharing information with women who are seeking it and looking for it, we are giving them a disservice because they're going to be scared anyway. If we think by hiding away and keeping it quiet and not letting anyone speak about anything that can go unplanned during childbirth, like the cesarean section without the aesthetic, you know, the forceps, all of the things that we don't talk about, women are going to be scared anyway. You're not going to stop them from feeling the fear by keeping it a secret. We need to be empowering women to have a voice, to be able to use the voice. But if we don't tell them that this can happen, they totally feel blindsided. We need to stop that and start having the conversations to not instill fear and make women think that their birth is going to go wrong, but just to give them the information of when or if it does happen. I know it's an opinion that might not be popular. And if you have a different thought or feeling about that, share it with us. We're open to hearing everyone's thoughts and feelings on this. I have put a link in the show notes for Leonie's website where you can check out her book, her splint, and the free Facebook group. So until next time, bye for now. Chances are, if you can still hear my voice, you are a dedicated podcast listener. And I would like to bet that maybe one day you'd like to start your own podcast too. Today's episode was brought to us by our podcast partner at Podbean. They are home to over 600,000 podcasts and Podbean is your one-stop shop for everything that you need to start your own podcast. So whether you're in a studio just like me or you're on the go, the Podbean tools allow you to record, upload and promote your podcast in a matter of minutes. You can download the free Podbean app and get started today. And if you use the code BRAVEMUM30, you can also get your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. So why not give it a go?